Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today we have with us Mary Beth Highland, who is the founder of Spark Vision, a company that focuses on helping companies to grow better culture. And so we're going to be talking about workplace cultures today. We're so excited to have you with us, Mary Beth. Thanks so much for having me. I likewise. Yeah. So um, we're really curious to hear more about uh, your company and more about you. So could you tell us a little bit more about your background and what the mission of Spark Vision is? Sure. I'd be delighted. So I have had my company, I can't believe it. I'm going into my fourth year now. My background educationally is in social work. And then I got my master's Uh in nonprofit management. And I actually kind of like stumbled into this work just on my own career journey. And so while I originally started doing work that was direct services and nonprofits for almost always underserved youth in Baltimore City, I eventually sort of in my own young professional development and figuring out what I want to be when I grow up, which I'm still figuring out. But um, it was one of those experiences where the job right before coming out onto my own was for United Way. And um, for for folks who are, are familiar, it is a pretty uh, large organization. It's it's a household name among nonprofits. It, it happens to be the largest nonprofit in the world. But a lot of people don't actually know what United Way does. And so I had uh, the wonderful opportunity of being a fundraiser while I was there, which I wouldn't have said it was a wonderful opportunity when I first took on the role. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know that I can go and ask people for money. Um, <laughs> and then I realized very, very quickly that it really wasn't about asking people for money. It was about developing relationships with people and helping to understand what it is that they care about and helping to illuminate where we overlapped in the services that we provided and what they cared about. And so I learned really quickly that um, relationships are everything. And after working there a couple years, I had the wonderful opportunity of inheriting their young professional program called Emerging Leaders. And while the program had really great collateral, there was a wonderful website, great marketing materials, nobody was going to the events and people didn't even know whether or not they were members. There was no real volunteer structure. And so the organization said to me, you know, you've been chomping at the bit thinking this is the next big thing. Why don't you just kind of just figure this out for us? And you're welcome to just do what you think is best within reason. So I had this incredible opportunity to really just explore and meet people where they were and do a lot of, again, more relationship development with young professionals. And by my first year of taking over, the program quadrupled in membership. And then after a year and a half, it was deemed the best practice model by United Way Worldwide. And so when that happened- That's awesome. Thank you. It, it was it was it was surprising. It was like equal parts surprising and exciting because it was like, you know, how did I get that when I've only been doing this for a year and a half and other folks have been doing this so much longer. And so um, what I learned is that when when folks call the headquarters asking for advice on how to engage young professionals, they would say, oh, why don't you call Mary Beth? So I had this incredible opportunity of talking to people all over the world that were engaging millennials in philanthropy and learning very quickly that the work that I was doing um, was actually a skill to it. I didn't, I just thought the way I was 
running the program was the way everybody ran the program because I assumed most people just develop relationships in the same way. I was I was still pretty young and and just even still learning how things work, you know, in the workplace and in society mm-hmm. as far as relationships and community are concerned. And so um, I learned fast that people did not understand this generation. Um, There was a real um, discrepancy between the old way, how it's always been done, and the way that young people were interested in getting involved. And so um, after coaching people through the network for a few years and being able to do webinars and trainings and and so many great opportunities, I I got to a point that was just an epiphany moment of realizing that if this one organization is having this much struggle with getting young people involved, um, then there must be other organizations that are having that, let alone the nonprofit sector. You know, what else? There must be that must be happening across all sectors. So thankfully, I was right (laughs) in having that thought. And so I stepped out and started my organization, Spark Vision, uh, with really that as my foundation and my platform to stand on that I knew there was struggle happening within the workplace among how do you create environments where young people want to be? How do you create places where people go out and can't stop talking about how great it is to be there and are staying long term? And so that's how I sort of stumbled into, that's the long version of how I stumbled into this work. It wasn't necessarily my intention to go into this culture space or even millennial engagement. It's just that I realized very quickly that um, there was a struggle and this was something that to a certain degree came naturally. And when I was able to start doing more research and my data was backing up sort of my anecdotes and personal experiences, I realized there's something here, there's something to this and more people need help in this area. So that's what I have the amazing pleasure of doing now is going in, helping individuals and organizations to really live in alignment with their values and create environments where people can thrive as a result of that. That is so interesting. That's like a really interesting story to start in one sector and now you're really working across sectors. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's it's incredible because oftentimes you think, oh, well, it has to be, it must be specialized, the nonprofit sector, and then you go somewhere else and you're like, oh, nope, there are people that work here too. It's a human thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, how did you actually come up with the content and and the structure of your business, like what you're providing your clients? That was also one of those, like looking back, it's hard to believe that was almost four years ago, but also like crazy to think how much things have changed. I I literally went, when I decided, when I gave my resignation, I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew that I wanted to start some form of uh, consulting practice. I knew that I had talent and I knew that there were people who wanted to work with me, but I didn't, couldn't tell you what the words were of what it, I didn't actually land on the word culture until probably like six months into the work because I just kept talking about, you know, human connection and the way we engage with one another and how you feel before you get to work and when you're there and when you leave. And so um, the words have changed so much in the last four years on how to just describe it. But I really came about this process by going on a retreat. I have quite a rigorous retreat schedule for myself. And the first thing I did was I went away by myself. I always go on retreat alone. And I just took a blank piece of paper and wrote all the things on a list that I knew I could do with confidence and that I could charge money for. 
And then I crossed out all the things that I was really good at, but I didn't want to do anymore because I didn't want to get into a position of just doing the things that I could do versus the things that I felt like were my purpose and intention for being here. Sounds like you have a similar strategy to Katina and I. We go on retreat as well. I mean, we go together. We are co-founders, but yeah, we... We really get a lot of just kind of getting away from our day-to-day and focusing in on what we want to accomplish, what we want to do. And it sounds like you're doing something very similar. Yeah, I I go on retreat probably a minimum of three times a year. Oh, wow. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> so this is sort of like a side note. My husband and I are actually on a, a quest to open a retreat center in the mountains of Idaho together. So this is a big part of our, like, belief system and understanding of how much better you can be as just a human when you take that time to be quiet and reconnect with yourself and understanding on where it is that you can make the most impact and make the biggest difference by being the most in alignment with your soul. So that's like the long-term vision of the work, but kind of a sidestep in talking about my love for retreats. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool though. But we, we agree. I mean, I think a lot of what you're talking about uh, with regard to, you know, creating workplace cultures that really create those connections between people that people get excited about getting up and going to work. I mean, really what it's about is that people understand themselves and what they're looking for and that the organization understands those individuals and what they're looking for and that the culture supports, you know, the growth of humans to become better um, and to achieve the goals that they feel connected to. So I think, you know, the same kind of concept applies to, you know, when people go on retreat like that, it's a time to connect to yourself and understand what it is that you're looking for. So it's kind of half of that equation. uh, And then, uh, you know, Spark Vision helps companies to understand that equation, I think. Yes. I'm sitting here like, I wish you could see my head. It's nodding so hard with everything you were saying. That's it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And I, uh, I'm i wondering if you might uh, talk a little bit about some of your experiences with culture at work, because, um, you know, you're you're talking about, I think, something that a lot of people are interested in, just these more human aspects and infusing them into work. And I know historically and still today, a lot of workplaces think about work as a transaction and mm-hmm. that's changing, but um, but it's important to to understand how do you get that to change? How, to, how does that change happen? So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen uh, kick into gear when employers start to show that they care about culture at work? Oh my gosh. Yes. There's so, there's so much to say about this. And it's, it's one of those questions, like, where do you start? Because there's so many directions to go, but, you know, speaking a a moment ago, you, you, you talked about sort of this evolution in the workplace and how maybe the idea of engagement and culture meant something totally different, even just five years ago than it does today. I don't know that people would even be able to use that language of culture except for in the of the last few years that it's become more of a normal conversation versus like a specialty thing because there there's a shift happening in the generations and um, it's no longer the incentive of having your pension and retiring from the same place which really wasn't that long ago where that was a normal idea if we if we just step back and look at it but 
now having this again like evolution of humanity in the workplace of it's just people want more than their paycheck and they want to know they're a part of something that's bigger than them and they want to know that they're making a difference and they want to feel connected to the people they're working with and connected to the people that are being served by whatever it is that they're providing and so those are things that are so intrinsic and something that we all actually really know because it is inside of us. So we all know this as a feeling, but we don't all know how to articulate it and we don't all know how to take action around it because so much of where the disconnect is happening in workplace culture comes from people who are wounded people and they have unhealed wounds and a lot of the time they're going into the office and they're bleeding all over people who didn't cut them and so this is not something that's separate from our human experience it's something that comes in people like to say you know work and life and i know that's actually starting to shift now um, there, there isn't a separation, right? And that's something that was believed to be true in the past, but now with technology and accessibility and social media and the way we're no what we're knowing about each other, anywhere, you know, whoever we want to know that about, it's really shifting the way people that showing up at work and what the expectations are around the way people are going to treat one another and what kind of experience they're going to have. And so the, the work that I'm doing oftentimes are, um, well, when I first started doing the work, I was working with a lot of the places that are the ones with the wounded folks that are really just really hurting a lot of people because they just haven't figured out how to manage themselves, let alone be a manager or lead a department at sometimes. And um, that was just really, really difficult because I was going into those places and doing culture analysis and giving them recommendations on their people would be so hopeful that something was going to change. And it was just so sad because I knew that they were doing this as an exercise of checking the boxes and saying they did something and that they weren't really invested in seeing it through and doing something. And so one of the beautiful things now about my work, though, is that I have a better process and understanding how to find the right people to collaborate with. So if it's not because you have a budget and therefore I'll do it. I'm in this beautiful position of now being able to be really thoughtful about who I partner with, even if they just want an analysis, because I want to make sure that they want it for a reason that's going to be about making a change and doing something different that's going to be better for their people. And so it's a wonderful position now to be in that those are the folks that I'm partnering with. And so we're having really deep conversations around the interpersonal relationships between people, the way they're showing up as individuals, understanding how they're making people feel before they get to work, while they're there, and when they leave. And so that's not what I got to do in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, it was just like proving that I deserve to be in the room. Um, and now I get to have really intentional and deep conversations with people on how to be able to show up as their best selves at work. And that has just been the most incredible experience. So I want to piggyback on something you just said about she, at first you really had to prove that you deserve to be in that room. And I think that, you know, that issue probably lies in a lot of different organizations, right? You won't, if somebody wants to make a change in their organization to improve their culture, to improve the workplace. Um, how do they get that attention? How did you prove that you deserve to be there before you got to shift and have these deeper conversations? I think the biggest thing was believing in myself. I mean, honestly, I, I was holding myself back the most of anybody. 
one of one of the things I mean, I, I talked at length about my background before starting my business, and most people would say like, "Oh my gosh, you've accomplished so much at such a young age. It's so amazing, whatever." You know, like that's the kind of things people would say to me. But I would be sitting there thinking like, "Well." you know, I just got lucky. And um, I I don't know if this is real, or it's just that I did really well this time. You know, it was it was me doubting myself and feeling like I hadn't proven it yet that I that I deserve to be there. And so that was the number one was like owning it myself. But then the second part, which was a much more sort of tactical and like part of my business is that I decided that I was going to do this national research on high achieving millennials and what it was that they were looking for at workplace culture, because that was what then gave me another step to step on top of, of saying, okay, not only did I develop this national model, but now I have research that's fitting with the things that I know should be true to experience are what thousands of young people are saying across the country. So that made a big difference in sort of my validity, but even that wouldn't have mattered if I still didn't believe in myself. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. I'd love to hear more about that research, actually. So what was it that you learned as you did your research? What kind of research did you do? Um, And what can our listeners really take away from what you found? Yeah, so the research um, came about exactly as, as I just was saying, like, I knew I needed something else to to give me that validity. And um, so I had this wonderful opportunity of having a fellow with me for a year and his background was in neuroscience. So he was really the perfect person for me to partner with in the sense of um, he had the brain to do the research and the data because that is actually not where I thrive. And I just wanted to know, you know, what what was it that we were going to find out? What were the differences um, of this generation and particularly of the ones that met the criteria for high achieving, quote unquote, Um, all the research we had seen out there was just about people born within the 20 year range. And we wanted to do something that was really more about the mindset of the individual, because there's plenty of stereotypes about the lazy entitled millennial that lives in their parents' basement. Um, But we wanted to be really honing in on what was it the folks that companies are desperate to get their hands on and often lose once they do. Like, we want to know what they are interested in and if it was the same as what we thought going into it. And so there were some surprises, but um, overall, it was really this incredible experience. We had hoped to have a thousand people participate because that's what gave us sort of the size to be able to make statements about the generation nationally. But we wound up getting um, a thousand people to participate in about a week. And it was like shocking. We didn't buy lists or work with anyone. It was all an organic campaign. And so we were like, wow, we can do so much more than this. And we ultimately got just about 4,000 people to participate. And if you know data, and it sounds like you ladies know data well, um, it was an 80-question survey with no incentive to participate. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. a quite, quite a large sample for no incentive. Uh, yeah, and a long survey. You know, like later on, we yeah. were like, 
to get away with this 80 questions. Oh my gosh. So anyway, we were, you know, we were figuring it out, but it was done in a way that was like super exciting because what that, it told us something in itself. It was like, if this many people are willing to take 18 minutes to take this survey, um, at this volume without incentive, what is that saying about how much they want their voice to be heard as it relates to this topic of hot, being a high achiever yeah. within the generation and wanting to speak their truth about what they're looking for in the workplace versus what the newest fad is in the workplace? So it was really exciting. And, and so we have the research. It's actually a free download on my website, which is sparkvisionnow.com. And then you just click millennials and we have two reports out um, for what our findings were, if anyone's interested in, in looking at them in depth. But the biggest thing that was a, a shocker to, uh, to me in the, in the process was finding out that the number one thing, the number one thing that high achieving millennials were looking for was accountability. Oh, accountability. How did you define that? So that's where we had, then we started doing our qualitative research to find out, you know, what, what, what did that mean? So first, the first start was the um, quantitative, which was people taking the survey at large, which it didn't define accountability, which is just a word or an option or a write-in. Uh, there was a whole bunch of different set, because we had 80 questions, you know, we poked at this a whole bunch of ways. But um, we found that from the qualitative side, we then interviewed hundreds of these individuals to, to get the definitions and, and get more of the story behind what they were saying. And what we found for, for accountability was not just that they're being held accountable to goals and standards, but that the people around them are also being held accountable to the same standards. Because I'm sure we've all had an experience where one person's held accountable, but not another, especially if they're in a different rank in the organization. Um, and then also that their company was accountable to what they said they were and who they who they said they were, right? So if they are saying they have values of innovation, but then you get into the office and they are not allowing you to present new ideas or challenge the way things have always been done, then that's not really their value. It's just a nice idea. So we found that it was accountability meant so many things, but really it was that everything that was expected of them was expected of others and that everyone was basically going to be holding each other to that standard, both internally and externally. That's so interesting. So in terms of that accountability, if someone was to ask you, all right, well, I'm a high achieving millennial and I really want to drive that accountability in my workplace, what would you tell them to do or how would you have them handle that? Well, first I need to get a little bit deeper on what do they mean by driving accountability? Like in their team, for themselves, like nobody's accountable. Do you want to give me a fake scenario? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, could, I could drill into something specific. But <laughs> account, you know, how do you start accountability is a really, it's a big, deep topic. So it's kind of, a lot of it is about, well, where are they now with it and where do they have to go? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess I was just looking for some kind of high level tips, like anything that, um, you know, you would recommend just kind of from your learnings of this research that people can do in the workplace today without necessarily diving in and coaching for hours, right? Just kind of like yeah. some small tips. <laughs> 
Yeah, I would say that the first thing, the, the easiest thing that's a high level tip for anyone is just having that conversation, right? Like being able to authentically go to the person who either you can together go in and pitch an idea around creating more accountability, or this is your supervisor and you want to talk to them about it as a concept. But I think the first step in any scenario is understanding where you are so that you can know where you can go from there. So if you don't, if you're saying like, for example, I want more accountability in meeting my goals, that's like the most, right, mo what people probably think of, like you're expected to increase by this amount, what accountability is being held, right? Um, and so in that kind of a situation, that person might want to be held accountable because they need, it's actually more coaching that they need and they want to have more benchmarks and ways to check in and those kinds of pieces. So in that kind of a situation, that would be an easy conversation around, you know, I do my best work when I have ongoing check-ins in my progress. Is that something we can map out together? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, you know, Sometimes because there are some stereotypes out there about millennials don't like face-to-face -face conversations and they don't want to, you know, deal with anything that's not technologically mediated and all of that. I think uh, sometimes managers shy away from the idea that millennials might actually want face-to-face -face meetings where they can sit down and get feedback or, you know, they might want to have those kind of touch touch base meetings where they can talk about goals and their career pathing and things like that. So um, I think that that's a helpful thing also for managers that might be listening to hear that, you know, making assumptions about really making assumptions about any generation, since there's so much variability within generation uh, about what they might want or not want to do with regard to uh, meetings, et cetera. It's always good to have a conversation and actually get it straight from the person. Right. And that's the thing you're, you mean, you hit the nail on the head around just because one person likes that in the generation doesn't mean everybody in that generation wants that. And so some people are really thinking about the theme of accountability. Some people like myself, like I don't need someone to hold my, me accountable. I would be in a bad position starting my business if I needed somebody else to check in on me on those kinds of things. But then there's like certain aspects that are nice to have somebody as like a support system through that. So that's one person. And then, you know, the person sitting right next to me could be the exact same age same background and say, I actually need to have a weekly check-in in order to be successful. Like that's just my style. It's not good or bad. It's just knowing yourself and understanding that everybody's different and needs different type of support. And some people that maybe need more coaching and accountability, they have another area where they're the total opposite of the person who doesn't. And so it's not like a, a good or a bad thing. It's just the differences within us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I know that we had talked a bit uh, before uh, you came to join us on the show about how a lot of your work around millennials and understanding millennials is really more about combating the stereotypes that exist about millennials and not trying to create new stereotypes about millennials, right? So you're trying to basically say what you think about this generation may not be true. And in fact, we've talked to some individuals who are high performing and what we found may be very very different from what you're assuming the millennials might be looking for or what they want uh, and sort of creating more of that cross-generational dialogue that I think people, you know, think is difficult to have. But when people sit down face to face and really start talking, they actually have way more in common than they think. 
Oh my gosh. Exactly. Exactly. It's so, it's so unfortunate, these stereotypes, because it really, it gives people this really easy sort of language of just writing somebody off without kind of getting curious and, and not saying, oh, well, it has to mean this because they're that age versus, you know, I'm not really sure what they meant by that. Or I'm just going to get, ask some questions to get some clarity instead of saying, oh, well, they're just a millennial. And so it's, it's interesting. It's it's really weird, but it's also really normal in that this is always the case. It's always kids these days. It's just that now there's a lot easier ways to complain and connect to one another in this digital age. And there has never been such a large generation ever in our history to, to come into the workforce the way that it is right now. So it's it's just this perfect sort of storm of, of the rub. But exactly what you said we're so much more we've so much more in common than we have different and the more that we can get curious about one another and come from a place of under wanting to understand versus wanting to prove how different we are um it really it's a really beautiful experience when that shift happens because um the it, it's it's amazing some of the stereotypes like you know we always want a trophy that kind of a thing that's a big one we always want to be recognized we have so much recognition I'm just coming from doing this really large research project um, that I came into a specific spot to do it, but I did interviews across the generation at their organization, and when it came to asking what it was that they that they wanted to feel recognized, like what what does recognition mean to you, and and do you receive that? That was the question. It was a two parter, and. Every, nearly every single person, irregardless of their age, said, I just want to be trusted to do my job. And I want to only, I only need to be recognized in any way when I go way above my job, way above my job description. And in that case, just having someone to tell me that they saw that I did that and they appreciated it is enough. And that was across the board. It was, there was not a single person who said they wanted to have an award given to them or a luncheon or, a, you know, a certification or there was nothing that was a tangible act. Everybody was just asking to be seen and to just be acknowledged for the expertise that they bring to the table. And so it was so fascinating that even though I did segment groups of people I was working with in some occasions across the generations, and there was no difference. Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight. I am quite an advocate of that thought where there's probably more individual differences just within a generation than across, right? People are people, regardless of what generation they sit in. And I'm really excited to hear that you found something very similar in terms of what people want in that recognition space, because a lot of those stereotypes are just unfair. And I think you're right. We we need to be open and, and curious about each other and learn. And then I think we'll be able to dispel a lot of those stereotypes because people are people and they all kind of want similar things. And it's really more about the individual than what generation they belong to. Um, but with that openness that you mentioned and, and kind of getting curious about others, so it sounds like you've worked, you know, across all these different generations. Have you had any specific tactics that really work well to dispel some of these stereotypes or have the different groups work together well? It's funny. I, I do a workshop called, um, 
narrowing the generational divide. And there's this one specific tactic that it's it's in a workshop setting, but it's it always cracks me up whenever I do it. So we start off by having people write, like getting in small groups and talking about speaking on behalf of their generation. And they talk about what are the stereotypes versus the truths as it relates to their generation in the workplace. And so they work, you know, independently and then they share in their small groups. And then I ask everybody to share out loud and it always winds up somebody saying uh, stereotype. You can only speak for your you can only respond as your generation. So you have to listen to what other generations are saying. And it's so fascinating because there's always like a, a World War II generation. There'll be maybe one or two of, of those employees in the room and someone will say, they, they don't like technology. And then, you know, the, the one guy in the room raises his hand of that generation. He's wearing his Apple watch and he is going on this whole um, conversation about how much he uses different pieces of technology to do his work today and how much he loves his Apple watch and all this. And so it's, it's such a, like a basic activity, but it's so powerful because it's people in real time showing you that sure there are, there certainly are people that can fit that category of things you're saying within that stereotype. But it's not, it's definitely not something that is a, a statement for all of us. So I often say, you know, there are entitled people and there are lazy people, but there's not an entire generation of people who make up those traits. So it's the same, it's the same for all generations as, you know, you've been alluding to, like just as human beings, but in an exercise where you can literally have people say out loud and have conversations in small group about what they believe are truths and stereotypes about the generation. And then when you bring it back to group conversation, it's just like the fastest way of dispelling a lot of those and, and doing it in a way that's quite humorous so that it's not this like argumentative conversation, but a, like a, hey, let's do some fact checking just amongst our team members here. Yeah, I've facilitated conversations uh, similar to that before. And you're right, it does help a lot to have people in the room that are representing not just, you know, what is my perspective, but also hearing other people's perspectives about them and then saying, well, wait, like, I don't agree with that. It makes them then realize, well, maybe I think some things that people wouldn't agree with either. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. and I think everything that you're saying links together really well, because the idea of creating a better company culture overall, and the reason why it links to this idea of generational difference is mostly because really good company cultures are those in which people do ask questions and go out of their way to get to know one another and make those human connections. So stereotypes and connectivity don't go together. So if you're going to have a good culture, you need to have one where people are open and willing to connect to one another in a way that um, makes sense for both parties of that connection. And stereotyping, and particularly this popular stereotype that you've brought up of uh, generational stereotyping, doesn't really help people to really connect with who they are inside. It just creates more surface level um, and and misunderstanding, I think, uh, than than otherwise. So I like the connection between those two things that it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so could you tell a little bit more about, you know, what is it that you think uh, the connection is between the way that you approach companies' culture 
and the way that you run your own company? Because I know that it can be really difficult uh, to think about, okay, you it, it's sometimes easier to go into other places and see what the issues are and fix them and address them uh, than to actually live those practices out in your own business. And it sounds like uh, you take you do a good job of taking time for yourself with retreats and things like that. So could you talk a little bit about how you stay well as an entrepreneur and run your business with that kind of um, messaging that you also tell other companies about? Yes. And I love that you asked this because if I didn't have a healthy culture at my organization, I have no right to go and help and coach other people and how to do that. And that is one of my greatest pieces of um, disconnect with some folks that no matter, regardless of what they're specializing in, right? Like, the idea of like not doing what you not practicing what you preach, whatever it might be, has always something that I, I it's been hard for me to understand that. But then I realize, oh right, we're all different and we all go into business for different reasons. But I am of the belief that if if you don't if I don't have a healthy culture with myself, with my team members, um, with all of my relationships, not just the ones that I have for for work, but the ones that I have at large, if I'm going to be going in and coaching people on relationships and human dynamics, I need to be. Um, practicing them. Not that I'm perfect. And I certainly am sure that I've pissed people off and said things that I shouldn't have and all that, but making sure that I am being aware and conscious of those practices so that I can not only teach the folks that I am working with through experience, but also through just living it in everywhere that I go, because then it's not a matter of like, all right, let me like get on my culture hat and like figure this out. It's such a, it's a beautiful experience now because it's just a fluid process. I'm not putting on my work hat or figuring out what I need to get in order in order to show up in this meeting in the right place because I'm practicing being in the right place with myself all the time because I know that's what's necessary to create these environments where people can thrive. It's like really being aware of yourself and how you're showing up in spaces and how your energy and your behavior is influencing other people and how much you're aware of your values and the things that push you forward and whether or not you're activating those things in your life. And when you don't, how you're not showing up as your best self. So it's, it's been a really um, cool experience in being able to say, I'm going on a retreat three times a year (laughs) (laughs) because I believe that, like, I believe in that. And I know that that is the way I can do my best work. And thankfully, I'm in a position where all of my clients believe in that for me too. And they support me being away when I'm away and I'm not available because I go totally off the grid. There's no TV, no internet, no cell reception where I go. And so like, that I would not have that luxury if I was still working at a traditional workplace and not being able to develop this myself. So while I still have room to grow in day to day and managing my calendar more effectively and things like that, I have done a really, I'm really proud of myself of the, the work that I've done around taking the time to pause and check in and do it in a really intentional and meaningful way and encouraging my team members to do that too and encouraging them to take the space and the time that they need you know i this is a, a sad thing to to bring up but but it's something that i in a, in a weird way i'm like really proud of uh, in this last year 
I lost both of my grandparents passed away. My research director's father passed away and my marketing director's mother passed away. And so it was a lot. It was a lot of grief in a, on a small team. And that, that level of, um, you know, the first degree family, right? Like this is, Mm -hmm. this was, this was big time stuff for all of us. And, I'm really proud of the way that we were able to support one another through it. You know, I've been in workplace environments where um, it was like nobody knew what to say say to each other and it was really awkward and it was like walking on eggshells and it's like, do you ask about it? Are they going to take off? Do I need to plan for things? Like, ooh, what do we do? Um, And so one of the pieces of self-care that was huge for my team and myself this year was making room for grief and totally being on board with however long that was and not suspending pay because of that, you know, like being able to really support each other through our human experience and that death is inevitable in our lives and that that is a part of the way that you can't separate work from life. You can pretend, but it really does. It's with you all the time. Grief is always with you when you're, when you're going through that. And so in, in, a, in, its, in a very deep way this year, I feel like we all grew a lot because we learned how to move through intense experiences in life and being supportive as colleagues and being supportive as friends and people who care about one another too. So I really believe strongly that those are the things that matter the the most when it comes to self-care and when it comes to being intentional about how you're showing up is like, how are you really there for people when they need it the most? And are you comfortable to be there? Because that's one of my biggest pieces of growth too, was like, I didn't know what to do. And now it's like, okay, well, I'm going to figure it out and we're going to figure it out together. And we're not going to pretend like it's not happening. We're going to talk about it openly and kind of move through it in whatever way it makes the most sense. It's a luxury to have a small team the way that I do. Um, so we can really be attentive in a way that is, is more difficult when your team gets larger. Um, but it's still possible. And, and if you're intentional with it, that's when you're going to have just incredible loyalty to one another and what it is that you're hoping to accomplish in this world. Even if they're not working for me, you know, I'm going to be loyal to these folks and I know they will be to me as well because we've just made that type of a relationship that's goes beyond just the paycheck and what it is that we're doing like between nine to five during the day or whatever hours they feel like working. (laughs) That's awesome. No, I think that it sounds like, I mean, a lot of self-reflection, it sounds like is really the key to being thoughtful about how do you take these principles that you're talking to others about and implement them in your own work? And also how do you live them even in situations that are really difficult or situations you haven't come across before? Um, how do you take a step back and say, okay, here's the situation we're in. How can we handle that using the same ethos that you know we want to be living um, and that we're telling other companies to, to live as well? So um, yeah. I think think that that uh, that comes through really strongly in in what you shared. And um, I think other people can certainly learn from that process that it's not about always having every answer planned out ahead of time, but it's about understanding that there's a process of stepping back and being intentional about how you want things to play out. And that will bring you to a better answer than if you just sort of let things fly and and don't take time to really step back and think. Um, Exactly. 
I also really like the thing that you mentioned about your clients being comfortable with your retreats, because I think that's really important is, I mean, obviously some clients are not going to be that way and that happens, but you putting the importance on the, that time for yourself that you've allotted as something that you need to do and expressing it just shows more to the client, how you model those behaviors. So not only are you doing it within your team and you can talk about that, but they're never in the team, right? They're never going to see that. But if they see, okay, she's going to leave, she's going to be gone for a little bit of time to take care of herself. And that that's when you're modeling it. That's when they actually are able to see what you're doing and be able to recognize that, okay, this is something that obviously she really believes in and is really important because she's doing it for herself too. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. When your work is no longer just something that you read a book about or you have a degree in, but it's something you live through behavior, it just, it transcends to another level. And that whole like feeling the right to be at the table, right? Proving yourself. Now for me, it's, it's like going on my retreats versus needing to have another piece of research because I've just progressed in myself and my own being on my own journey, but also realizing like the best form of proof and earning it is living it and not like just feeling like you have to have a certification or a title or something in order to be there. But like, no, you, you, you need to be there because you're living and breathing this in an organic way that is meaningful, not in a contrived way to try to prove something. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, well, this has been awesome. We've learned so much uh, and time has flown by. Um, so uh, if uh, there's anything else that you think our listeners should know, um, now is the time to uh, let them know anything that we might have left out about Spark Vision or about yourself or any closing comments that you might want people to take with them regarding uh, the content we've covered today. Oh, thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm just so honored to be a part of your show. I know you are two brilliant women, and I am. It's been lovely getting to know you two better. And I, uh, I would just love that if anybody would like to continue the conversation or be connected, I'm really active on LinkedIn. And so, if anybody wanted to connect with me there, I would love to continue to have dialogue and talk more about culture. Awesome. Well, I hope that people take you up on it because we've certainly had fun talking with you about that. Um, And before we close, uh, we do have one final fun question for you. Um, And that is, and it makes some sense now that we know that you travel around and go on retreats and things like that. Um, If you could snap your fingers and be anywhere in the world right now doing anything you wanted, where would you go and what would you be doing? So this probably won't be a surprise given what I've been sharing, but um, I would be on the top of a mountain in Idaho where is my mom, my family has a ranch out there and that's where I go on my retreats often. And um, I would be there and there would be, but it would have to require that um, somebody else was feeding the stove and keeping the house warm the whole time. But it's just so beautiful. Um, at this point, I'm sure there are many feet of snow and um, it, you get snowed in for a season when you're out there because it's the kind of place that takes about 20 minutes to get up the driveway and um it's a hundred acres of land on the top of a mountain and there is nobody out out there. It is just you and the beauty of 
uh, the mountains around you and the animals that come through and that is my happy place so if I could be anywhere it that is always my answer that's where I'd want to be amazing well that sounds great um and very relaxing very good scene setting <laughs> yeah. that you did there that sounds good I was going there with you in my mind um oh, thank you well, thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate your time. We learned a lot. We know everybody else listening will learn a lot. So um, just thank you for being here. And uh, we look forward to seeing everything else unfold for you in the future, uh, what oh, your next moves will be. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation with Mary Beth. We thought it was fabulous. If you'd like to learn more about her and her company, Spark Vision, you can find her on her website, which is sparkvisionnow.com. We'll also have a link to it in the show notes and a link to her LinkedIn since she is ripe and ready to have conversations with all of you. And of course, reach out to us if you have any questions or if you would like to chat with us, you can find us at workerbeing.com. You can email us at workerbeing at gmail.com and you can find us on social media at workerbeing. Thanks for listening. Bye. Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Oh.